this episode, I interviewed Jillian Johnsrud, who, like a lot of people that you're going to see in this podcast early on, I've known her for many years. I hadn't talked to her since the pandemic. I hadn't talked to her since like 2021, which is so wild, but she's just the sweetest person and she's a great personal finance personality where you'll notice a lot of people that come on the podcast, especially that are, that are influencers or, uh, what have you, like they usually have some kind of thing that they talk about a lot. And for her, it's, it's really many retirements. You know that, well, I don't know if you know this, but there is this whole community out there called the fire community. And they, they advocate for just retiring super early. Jillian's different though. Like she's kind of part of that community, but kind of not in that she's talking about just retiring kind of often, but doing these mini retirements. So it could be like a month or it could be like six months or 18 months. It's a really cool concept. And so we really dig into that later in the podcast. Uh, we also talk about just reaching financial independence with kids. She has five kids, which is so the fact that she was able to do it the way she did it is so wild. And the cool thing about her, she reached financial independence at 32 years old, which is very, very young. And she did it. I don't want to go into all the details. I don't want to spoil it for the podcast, but the way she did it wasn't like conventional. Like she was a, you know, highly paid engineer or, uh, she, her and her husband did this in a way that is extremely impressive. And we also talked about her, uh, her book. Uh, she's got a book called fire the haters. Um, and she also has another book coming out. She'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. So I hope you enjoy this one, Jillian Johnsrud and, uh, yeah, see you in the podcast. Jillian, what's up? Hello, we we're just talking. Hello. It's yeah. it's been like it's been like three years since I've talked to you, uh, which is oh. I think it's been three years. I'm just guessing. It's definitely been more than one, though, right? Yes. Yeah. Crazy. yeah. I think your wife was pregnant, and I think it was pre-pandemic. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man. Yeah, we had <laughs> we had our kid in the middle of the pandemic, mm-hmm. which I guess it was just like it was such a surreal experience. Like we went to the hospital, and like you had to wear masks, and it was so like. It was so weird. And uh, like we want another kid. And I feel like one of the things we've talked about a lot is like it's going to be such a weird experience to not have a kid during the – like it'll be like a more normal experience, you know? Yeah. Like we don't even know yeah. what that is. It was just such a strange time. <laughs> it, was, it was a strange time in life, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I was super, I'm, I'm super excited that you came onto the show because I was actually talking to, um, my head of operations, Ariel, and she was like, I want you to interview Jillian. And I was like – I love Jillian. I haven't talked to her forever, <laughs> but like, I I'd love to, um, we were just talking about like different people to bring on. So I don't know. I just, I always enjoy talking to you. It's just been forever since we've done it. Well, thanks Ariel. Now I kind of want to yeah. chat with her. Did she give you some questions? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't have any questions. I just go, you know, I just like, uh, to me, I just want to catch up with people. Part of the whole premise behind this podcast was like just talking to people like in having normal mm-hmm. conversations with people about money. Uh, yeah. Cause I think that there's a lot of people that don't, <sighs> there's a lot of people that don't have people in their lives that talk about money. You know, yeah. I, I was one of those people. I, I was very fortunate that I met a friend that like kind of took me under his wing and taught me a little bit. And then I kind of found myself <laughs> in this weird world, this personal finance world. <laughs> um, but most people over the years have been like, how do I find mentors? And like, how do I find people mm-hmm. to talk to? And it's like, it's not easy. I feel like you kind of get lucky a little bit. Yeah, I definitely didn't have many money friends along the journey. Um, and I would say it's one of the best parts about the personal finance community is you can find people to talk to money, talk about money with. Um, and I always yeah. encourage people, if you ever want to learn more about something, write about it. Like there's no, I don't know if there's a better way if you're like, I really want to figure out investing, take the next year and every day 
write about investing. Any questions you have, anything you're learning, anything you're figuring out, like there's something about the writing process that really helps you organize your thoughts. Yeah. I, it's funny when I first started, I think that was, so I started back in 2015. That was the only thing that you really could do. Like there wasn't mm -hmm. like, we didn't have TikTok, which is, I feel so old saying that, but like we didn't have TikTok <laughs> and we didn't have like maybe a YouTube was around. Um, but Jay money was actually the first blog that I ever found. Mm -hmm. Um, it was, it was either him or Aaron from broke millennial. Mm -hmm. And I remember just like looking at Jay money stuff and I love Jay. I want to have him on the show. Would he do a show like this where he shows his face and stuff? I think so now. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I could just do something with him blurred out, I guess if he wouldn't, but like, <laughs> he's just, he's such a great personality and like, he literally mm -hmm. just like documented stuff. It was just, just exactly what mm -hmm. you're saying. Like he would just write cool stories about his life and his coin collecting and all the different, you know, cool stuff that he does. And it's like, that's how I got like into this is just <laughs> seeing people write stuff. And then I started writing. Oh. Is that how you kind of got into it or did you do something different? Um, no, for me. So when I be, when I hit 32, I, we had in the year or two before we had adopted three kiddos. We had one biological kid I found out I was pregnant. And so we were going to go from one to five in the span of two years. And I had a little bit of a mommy meltdown because I was like, <laughs> I can't handle this. Like, I almost felt like I'm drowning. We cannot add an infant to this equation. And, you know, the funny thing was my husband and I, like a day before we found out we were pregnant, um, we're away at like a little couple's, like our little solo retreat, you know, my mom mm -hmm. was watching the kids and we were kind of dreaming about life and planning and like, what's kind of our five-year plan. Um, and then the next week I was like, okay, new five-year plan. <laughs> uh, plan now is you're quitting your job and we're taking a year off because I'm not doing this by myself. Like he was working a yeah. really stressful, demanding job. Um, and. So for that year off, we kind of brainstormed, like, what do we want to do? What are some things we wanted to do in this time? And I just wrote something to do with writing. Like mm -hmm. I was tired. I was burned out. I had no big aspirations. I'm generally like a dream small person anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> something to do with writing. I had my baby and I was, you know, I was kind of in that, that first season of like the first two months where like, you're just breastfeeding 10 hours a day. And that's your entire life is sitting in a chair, um, kind of all by yourself with this infant and thinking about what do I want to write about? And I landed on personal finance because I didn't have anyone to talk to about money. Like, yeah. I thought, well, like, there's a lot of things I could write about. I could write about parenting. I've got like a bazillion children, but all of my <laughs> friends were parents. Like that's all we talked about anyways. Like I needed to write about this cause this is like the one place I didn't really have space in my life to, to talk about it. Yeah. What were you doing before? Like what was, what was your job? I can't remember. Oh man. I did all sorts of stuff. Oh, so I never, I don't know. I didn't. So growing up, I grew up pretty poor and I never had an expectation of making a lot of money. 
Yeah. Like I never thought this is something that I am destined for. I always assumed like my greatest aspiration was like, maybe I could be middle-class, but that seemed like a farce. So I was like, I'll just never make a lot of money. That's cool. <laughs> um, I also had this mindset of like, I really want to help people. So therefore I will always be poor. Like mm. if you help people, you don't get to earn money. Like pick one or the other, but you don't get both. It was kind of this <laughs> right. this mindset I had. Um, and so I, let's see, I worked at coffee shops for a long time. Um, nice. I eventually became a manager at Starbucks uh, until I got seriously hurt. Um, I worked at a church as a youth pastor. Um, I was awful at that. Uh, I worked at REI because I like camping and the outdoors. Yeah. I sold shoes there. I did customer service. Uh, and then, oh, I worked at a, a specialty high-end mattress store, sold mattresses and chairs. I uh, took a few years off, and then I came back, and I did commission sales in furniture. Okay. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about in there, um, specifically around just the mindset of like, I'm never going to have money because I had the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we get there, can you, you worked at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Why does their coffee taste burnt? This is something I've been asked. Like I've talked to my wife about this like a million times. Cause like, I want to like Starbucks, you know, yeah. it's like, and I'll get it for sure. But mm -hmm. I'm like a black coffee drinker. And every mm -hmm. time I get it, I'm like, God, this really isn't that good. And I don't know what it is. <laughs> Are they purposely burning the beans? Like, is that like why they do it? Like, is there a specific, do you have any idea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is the flavor profile that they think is the best. And they started there oh gosh, and it's a burnt. very specific, a very scientific process of how they roast the beans. And they decided that's the proper way to do it. And we'll just, Whoa. they, I, they seem a, not oblivious, but like they really don't care that people think it tastes burnt. They're just like, what whatever, you're wrong. So this is how we're yeah. going to make it. That's what I'm saying. Cause every person that I've ever talked to that just drinks black coffee from Starbucks is like, it's not very good. And I've never seen a product like that where it's like the general consensus is like, this is not very good, but we're going to keep buying it and they're not going to change it. Like it's just going to be this thing that we deal with all the time. Yeah. And it's interesting because they're not like, super religious on any other aspect of what coffee is <laughs> like they right. were really it's not like they're like we're artisanal italian uh coffee shop experience no they'll sell sushi they'll sell smoothies <laughs> like <laughs> they've gone in any way that the customer would appreciate or enjoy they will go there except with how they roast their coffee Just... and i don't yeah, I don't get it. That's the line in the sand. We won't make something that people really like. <laughs> That's so wild. Did you like working there? Um, yeah, I did. I did. It was, it didn't pay well, but there again, I didn't expect to make a lot of money. So I thought it was fine at the time. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of fun and I think they had a pretty good kind of work culture. They really tried. Um, so there were definitely a lot of things that were good about it versus other jobs I had. And it was one where I grew a lot professionally. Like they gave a tremendous amount of training of how to be a good manager. 
I had always naturally ended up being a manager, but like no one ever taught me how to do that. And Starbucks was the first place that was like, here's how you hire people. Here's how you develop people. Here's how you reprimand people. Here's how you fire people. Um, and they really had a great system and framework for that and, and a good culture that supported that educational process. <laughs> the, the, yeah. The, one of the best work lessons I ever learned was at Starbucks, and it was from one of my employees who, man, just ripped into me. I've never had an employee. I've managed a lot of people, probably probably two or 300 people at this point, and I've never had yeah. an employee be so angry. But it was like one of the best professional lessons I got <laughs> in that I was coming into work. We had to make the schedule it was at the time stupid and annoying and like a weird game it was like a computer game it was so frustrating and so i'm going and i have all these things all these administrative things i have to do and i think okay they're a little busy up front i'm just gonna sneak into the back i'm gonna get on the computer i'm gonna knock like 20 30 minutes out and then i'll come out and I'll say hi to everyone. And so I sneak back, I get started, and she comes back and is like, what the hell are you doing? Oh. And I was like, oh, Ooh. excuse me? She was like, everyone out there thinks you're mad at them. Everyone is upset. Everyone doesn't know why you're ignoring them, what they did wrong. Like, why you won't let them make you a drink? Because it was a very, it was a culture of like, kind of a sign of respect of like letting someone else make your drink for you. Like I oh. trust and respect you enough in your skill to make a drink that would meet my standard was kind of like wow. a thing versus okay. like, you're not good enough to make my coffee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dang. okay. Um, and it, it was such a powerful lesson that I carried with me and that we read so much into our bosses and our superiors attitude into their mood into their body language where if I was just another coworker, no one would have thought anything about it like no yeah. one would have cared um, but because I was their manager like how I behaved mattered so much more and like I have never forgotten that like when when everyone's eyes are on you like how you present yourself and how you treat people like really matters because it carries yeah. 10 times the weight. Yeah, that's so true. Um, that's something I've had to think about a lot. Like as I've, as, as we've started to grow our company and like hire more people, like you can't just say whatever you want. Sometimes like you have to really be careful about the things that come out of your mouth and like how you, uh, mm -hmm. I don't know the faces you make, especially on the zoom mm -hmm. stuff. You mm -hmm. know, it's like, there's so much context lost here that like, um, you do have to be really careful about that. So that's interesting. I've never heard the drink thing about Starbucks before. Um, what was, is that the first time you fired somebody? Oh, I didn't fire her. No, I thanked her. Oh, okay. Well, you said that you fired somebody at Starbucks. So I just assumed. Oh yeah. I fired person. lots of people. No, no. You know, and I, it really, because it was so impactful, it's really shaped the way that I've managed people. And now mm. I consistently ask, ask all of my employees, all my contractors, what are three weaknesses I have that are impacting you? Like if you could pick three things that I should work on as a boss, as a leader, what would be the three that are most helpful? Uh, 
because I have weaknesses. I know I do. They know I do. What we don't right. know is which of my weaknesses are really impacting them the most. And so creating that space of like, I find bottom up is the best feedback. Top down, eh, it's okay. Um, but yeah. man, that bottom up, like that's what actually helps me improve in a, as a leader in a way that improves my team's performance. Um, and I ask my kids the same thing. <laughs> what are three things I'm doing awesome as a mom? And what are three things that uh, you would really like me to work on? With my employees, like very... I am never surprised. With my kids, <laughs> they surprise the hell out of me all the time. What do your kids say? You know, it's sometimes they are spot on. Um, one of my teenagers very aptly said, uh, you're never angry until you're very angry. And I was like, uh, yeah, yep. <laughs> I'm the same way. Unfortunately, um, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, maybe I shouldn't feel bad about that, but I'm the same way. I, I totally am. And that I'm not very good at like expressing my frustration with their behavior until I hit that tipping point. And then I'm like, yeah. you all are driving me insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sometimes it's funny, like, you know, we came back from an eight month road trip. So we were in our camper for eight months straight and we have a little vacation property that we leave our camper at in the summer. And one of my daughters was like, I want to spend more time there. Like, if you take me there more, like that's one way you could improve. And I was kind of like, really? Like we just Dang. lived in our camper for eight months. Like, aren't you happy to be <laughs> home? Like you want to spend more time in the camper? She was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, well, let's, let's do it then. That, that actually does sound fun to be honest with you. Like it, um, you're in Montana, right? Is this mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. Um, the team and I were, we have this big goal that we just created um, where we want to, buy an investment property or just buy a property in the Pacific Northwest or maybe Montana, maybe, um, where we do like leadership retreats. And then mm -hmm. we also like one of the perks that we want to have for our, at least like the leadership level employees is just, uh, basically being able to go there like, you know, mm -hmm. two weeks out of the year or something like that. Like they could just use it as their vacation home sort of thing. Um, yeah. and so we were talking about, we're, we came up with this idea in Oregon. Have you ever been to Oregon, like Bend, Oregon, mm -hmm. that area. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's so, uh, it's so nice. I'm like obsessed mm -hmm. with it right now. Um, <laughs> but we talked about it there, but then we also started talking about like big sky Montana, I think is a place, right? Like is that the, is that a place? Like the ski resort. Oh, okay. So that doesn't sound like a great place to do it. it well, I don't know. What's a good place in Montana <laughs> to maybe buy a, a rental property. Um, I mean, it depends what you're looking for, but really anything, anything on the West. Um, okay. you know, our big towns are Bozeman, Missoula, Kalispell, Whitefish, where I live. Uh, Whitefish is nice, very vacationy. Okay. You could definitely like Airbnb it in the summer when you're not using it. Uh, cause yeah. the, the hotel costs around here in the summer are like three fifty to 500 a night. It's like New York okay. city prices. Like it's bizarro, but yeah. it's nice in the, in the summer you've got Glacier National Park, and then in the winter, you've got Whitefish Mountain, which is a really nice ski resort. So you've kind of got two good seasons for, depending what you're looking for. I talked to Robert Farrington the other mm -hmm. day from the College of Vester, and we were kind of talking about the same topic. 
Are you tired of people from California moving to Montana? Um, I'm not, and I'm the exception for okay. sure. For sure. Has it done the same um, thing there? Has it like jacked up the prices or is the Yellowstone thing worse? <laughs> Both. I mean, everything, <laughs> everything like with remote work and with like our airports growing a lot. So it's really easy to get flights in and out now versus, you know, 10, 20 years yeah. ago. Um, it's definitely more expensive. It's always been a big vacation spot. It's always been like a popular retirement spot. And so we typically had yeah. a really old population. Uh, but the trouble is when you have a lot of retirees or, you know, people who can work remotely or vacation homes is it does cause the real estate not to move in tandem with the local economy. Um, so you've got expensive homes and not great paying jobs. <laughs> um, yeah. And those two things don't really mesh well together. Okay. Yeah. We were just talking, I remember when I talked to him about it, it was just like the, the amount of people that are coming from California and buying mm -hmm. like multiple properties at the same time and just like paying way over asking price mm -hmm. in all these like beautiful places is, uh, I think it's probably pretty frustrating, but has, mm -hmm. I mean, has that happened like in your specific area or oh, yeah. what part of Montana are you in? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah really? We're okay. in Kalispell. We are the fastest growing micro community in the U S like uh, community under 50,000. Yeah. Um, Wait, what is it called? Community, micro community considered community under 50,000 people. We're the fastest. Okay. No, I just meant the, the name US. of the town because we, might, oh, we might look there for the. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah, Kalispell. Whitefish is close to us, like anything in the, we call it the Flathead Valley. Um, okay. Yeah, really popular. Robert spent time up here. He come, like, he's come and what? hung out and, yeah. Uh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Robert's great. I love talking to Robert. Well, um, sure. So going back to Starbucks and mm -hmm. actually not even to Starbucks, just like that part of your story. And you said, uh, you felt like you were never going to make any money, like any mm -hmm. real money. Why did you feel that way? Um, you know, growing up, I just didn't, I didn't have a tremendous amount of hope. Like we didn't have a lot of money, but it was also a really challenging family dynamic. Um, when I was, when I was, well, forever, but when I was younger, it really impacted me. I was dyslexic. And mm. so in school, like all of those years were like memorization, super important. Uh, I wasn't getting it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think a lot of people looked at me and it's like, I was a kid from kind of a poorer family, kind of a chaotic family. I wasn't doing great in school and they weren't like, she's going to be a superstar. Like she's going to make a million dollars. Um, so I didn't really have that kind of external, um, expectations either. Um, and so I just, I think I was kind of content slash hope felt dangerous. Like it felt like hope is what could put you in a risky, precarious situation. Um, so you just had to like, it was like a low gambling, like a low risk, like work jobs that pay you on Friday. Like the idea of becoming an entrepreneur, becoming a creative kind of was like for suckers who like, are wishful thinkers who are willing to waste a year or two of their life in the hopes of it paying off. 
And I was definitely grew up in a family of like, you work a job that pays you on Friday because you have bills to pay on Friday. So like you can't like being, being hopeful and wishful thinking, like will only get you in trouble. I don't know if I've ever heard somebody say that before that like hope sounded kind of like dangerous. Like this is a really interesting, I, you're the first person I've ever heard say that. Yeah. You, I'm guessing you don't feel that way anymore. Um, I mean a little bit. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. I feel like, cause I think it's like, you know, embedded into like childhood trauma in, in my nervous system. But I do encourage people like if hope feels dangerous, if it feels like you're just going to be let down, like you're just setting yourself up for disappointment. Um, I'm definitely kind of a dream small, like have a small dream, start to make progress on that. Because once you start to make progress, like your dream can expand a little bit and it can expand a little bit. You know, people ask me a lot because we became financially independent when I was 32, which is like bizarre and crazy and outrageous. And they were like, was this the plan all along? Hell no, there is right. no way, even if I could travel time back to my 19 year old self, that I could sell her on this idea that you'll be financially independent when you're 32. 19 year old Jillian would be like, that's insane. And you're stupid. And this is all fake. <laughs> like, uh, forget about all of this. And so you have to like, set the thing, the goal that stretches you a little bit, but you will see some some progress on like, you know, to sometimes if your dreams are too big, you don't really feel like you're making enough progress to maintain motivation. Um, yeah, I could definitely see that. That's like when I quit my job to do all this stuff, I didn't even have a dream. <laughs> like I just kind of <laughs> did it and I was like, yeah, I'll just see what happens. Um, which I wouldn't recommend for anybody, but, um, how did you, how did you become financially independent so early? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, things in life compound and compounding is, um, hard to comprehend. And so we set out, we initially had like $55,000 of debt. And so our initial goal was just like to pay that off. And then we were saving half. So then that kind of rolled over into, we had our emergency fund and we started investing. And then I was like, Ooh, what if we could like pay cash for a house? And we ended up renting for 10 years in this process and just kept investing. But then, you know, when the time came, we decided to buy the ugliest house <laughs> instead of like a house that we could have, you know, legitimately paid cash for, uh, and been just fine. And so it was like, at each point, there was a lot of choices we made because early on thinking that we would never make a ton of money, I was like, listen, we, we aren't going to make enough money to do both of these things. So we can look rich or we can become rich. There ain't enough money to do both. <laughs> so <laughs> pick one. <laughs> Some people can do both. We cannot. That's not our lot in life. And so it was constantly coming back to like, I wanted that security. I wanted the options that money gave and like having to prioritize those over, 
looking and feeling a little bit more rich, which at first was super hard because when you grow up poor, you really don't want to look and feel poor. Like it sucks. And sometimes, oftentimes, when you start to come out of that poverty, like you'll put a disproportionate amount of your income towards just like looking and feeling normal, like feeling like you belong, feeling like you don't have to be embarrassed or ashamed. And so it's real tough to choose to look poor while you're building wealth. Um, After I became what I felt like was rich, it got a lot easier to look poor. So I was like, whatever, I'm good. Um, I remember once dropping off, man, we had this beater with a heater. It was like an old Honda Civic. All the paint was popped. When I go in to get snow tires put on, and I don't know if you've ever had like a telepathic conversation with someone. This nice young man comes to get my keys for my car and he sees me sitting in my car. And he looks at me in a way that says, you seem too pretty and too nice to drive this piece of shit car. (laughs) (laughs) All in his mind. And so I telepathically replied, it's okay. I'm actually rich. This whole situation's okay, but like, I get it. (laughs) I get it. Um, But that was definitely much easier. Like, after I had a million dollars. Right. Yeah. I could, I could definitely see that feeling a little bit different. What were you, um, at the time when you made, you and your husband made like the most progress toward Mm -hmm. becoming financially independent, like what were you doing for a living? So my husband joined the military, um, but as an enlisted, so he was like an E1, an E2, an E3, um, you know, even together combined with all the benefits and things like that, we never made more than 70, 80,000. Um, I typically made about 30, maybe 35 on a good year. Um, and he brought home, you know, about 30, 35 on a good year, um, was kind of his take home pay out. You know, we also got housing and healthcare and that's kind of stuff, but, um, yeah, we never made a ton of money. That's so wild. <laughs> like, cause I would have assumed, uh, I would have assumed that you said something like, I think when most people hear, I don't know, somebody becomes financially independent at 32, that they worked at like, that they were an engineer or that they worked, they were like a banker or, or like worked on wall street or something like that. You know what I mean? Made money. Yeah. It, yeah. I think it's definitely yeah, easier if you make money <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It's so crazy. It's just so much, uh, did you feel like at the time that it was like a lot of like real sacrifice? Like, did it, was it like painful sacrifice? Mm, I mean, so pros and cons of growing up poor, I was pretty comfortable being poor. Like I didn't like looking poor, but the mechanics of it, like buying used clothes, driving old cars, never going out to eat. This was my entire life. So it wasn't like, and now I'm making this huge sacrifice. No, the, the only discipline was not wasting all of this money, trying to look a little bit more rich and instead like trying to invest it to stay rich. But my whole life had been, how do we how do we try to find as much enjoyment and meaning and fulfillment with like these very meager resources? Um, 
And so for me, it wasn't hard in that sense, like, because I wasn't really changing anything. My husband had grown up in a very middle class lifestyle. And so yeah. when we got together, we had vastly different ideas of what <laughs> this should look like. Like, he, he grew up with what I call like Applebee's money. Like, they went out to like Applebee's like three <laughs> times right. a week. So he had Applebee's money. <laughs> and I had like mcdonald's once a month money right. and so i was gonna move forward with mcdonald's once a month money and he was like okay so we can't afford like applebee's three times a week maybe we can do like jack in the box three times a week and i was like are you insane absolutely not like there is no way we can afford jack in the box three times a week um so it was a little little bit of a meeting in the middle of what our expectations for what our lifestyle would look like yeah i my wife um she when she was growing up they went through a period of time where like they they were in bankruptcy and like really really struggling to get by and i remember when i met her she wouldn't eat uh what was it she wouldn't eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and she wouldn't eat fried rice because those mm. were the things that like when she was growing up they had it like every single night yeah. And it's like, it's, it was so interesting because I came from, I'd say a, like a, I don't know, most of my childhood, probably like lower middle class, if I had to guess. Mm -hmm. And I remember her talking about like, she felt like we were so rich because <laughs> my parents had like, you know, pretty nice cars. They weren't driving like, I don't know, a Ferrari or anything, but they had like cars that weren't beat up. Um, and it was always interesting, like the perspective, like the change mm -hmm. in perspective from like what she saw and what I saw, because I was just like. I, I mean, when I was a little kid, I was like complaining to my parents that we didn't have a two story house, which is like so mm. stupid because now that I'm older, I'm like, I don't even want to, I wouldn't want a two story house. I want, we have a one story and I like it. I want to have to go upstairs. Mm. Um, but she like, it's just so amazing. Like how people that, that grow up without a lot, like they, uh, I don't know. They value things a lot more. Do you, do you feel the same way or is it? There were definitely moments of joy that like until you've until you've been there, like, I don't know if you can fully appreciate, but like, I remember maybe it was my junior year. It was like late into my teens when we had the very first, like first time in my life, we had a full tank of gas and I cannot Whoa. describe how excited and like overwhelmed with emotion I was. Um, and it was only because someone like gifted it to me. Like we were in a farming ranching community. So people have like their own little gas pumps, like on their, by their house, which is just a thing. And they said, yeah, just fill up, fill up the tank. And they filled it up all the way. And I was just overwhelmed. And I came home and told my mom like, oh my gosh, you won't believe this. Like we have a full tank of gas. Cause my entire life it had been like five or 10 bucks of gas. Like that's what we bought. Um, so yeah, that, that amount of joy, I don't know if I can ever recreate the amount of joy. My kids will never know the joy of a full tank of gas. They've never thought about it once in their entire lives. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing that they won't know that? Um, you know, there are pros and cons to all of it. And it's tough being a parent in that you want to give your kids every good thing that you have and remove every bad thing you went through. But sometimes those things are, 
intricately interwoven and you can't really separate it. Like I'm definitely giving my kids a different life, a way different life than what I had, (laughs) but there will be some downsides to that for them. Like not intended, but unintended for sure. And you can't always recreate the benefit without the struggle. Does that, I mean, is that something you think about a lot? Like this is something my wife and I, just for context, like we talk about this Mm -hmm. all the time. Cause like, you know, our, our kid is for sure going to grow up in a different environment than we did. And I, it's like a weird thing. Cause it's like, I worry about that, but I'm also Mm -hmm. like, that doesn't make me like a jerk to just think about like, like, how do you make, how do you keep things very real? for your kid. And it's not something that I have figured out. And I, I've kind of been putting it off cause my kids too. So it's kind of like, well, he doesn't really, <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on. Um, but is that something that you like actively try to do? Like now that you have built wealth and like, what do you do to try to make them not be jerks when they grow up? I don't know. I mean, we have a lot of conversations with our kids about, about money. We talk about money a lot. Um, and I try to provide a context for like, our life is not normal. Um, so we travel typically half the year. We go lots of places. We do lots of things. Like I didn't travel a lot as a kid. I am massively overcompensating with my children. <laughs> like to, to, to like a, I should maybe just go to therapy and solve this kind of uh, scale. Right. And so I'm always like, hey, this isn't normal. Like just so you guys know. And sometimes my kiddos just be little little jerks because i'll like have to work for like 90 minutes in a day and they're like oh why like why are you always working (laughs) and i'm like it's literally 90 minutes for the entire day i was like okay let's let's bring reality back into context (laughs) what do working parents in america look like so let's remind you so most parents work eight or nine hours both parents work here's what it would look like like 90 minutes isn't you're gonna be okay like this isn't a huge sacrifice on your part but yeah they're they live in this weird delusional life that i'm constantly trying to bring them back to reality yeah yeah that's got to be tough and i it's like yeah how do you make that real for them i guess maybe you just can't you know maybe that's i mean i think you it sounds like you just kind of try the best you can right i think you have to like optimize for a couple things because there's no way i'm going to be able to recreate my entire like all of the best parts of my childhood for them so optimizing for a couple things one of them is that i really want them to value value money like value that it's significant uh, and not just be wasteful and think that it's like this weird unlimited resource and so we've we've always had our kids do chores we've always paid them for their chores they're responsible for buying pretty much anything they want we buy the stuff they need but we buy them like one toy a year that's it we're not toy people if you want anything else <laughs> you have to work and you have to buy this <laughs> random crap because I can't have that much crap in my house. Um, And I've always kind of underpaid them market value, like pretty significantly, because I want when they get a job and they start to work outside the house, I want them to be stoked. Like I want them to be so excited (laughs) about having like real money. And for whatever aligning of the stars, this was the year where all of my kids were like, we want to get jobs. And I was like, go for it, like fun. 
So one of them became a dog walker, one of them mowed yards, one of them became a babysitter. And so like, so for context, uh, one of them does the laundry every single day, a load of laundry, because that's how much yeah. laundry our house goes through. Every day oh, there's a load. Yeah, I can't even. And yeah. I think we pay her like $3 for this. Like It's like 50 cents a load. <laughs> so $3 a week. Um, and so she started becoming a babysitter and she made like $40 a day. And it just exploded wow. her mind that in a week she is a hundred dollars compared to the crappy three dollars that we've been paying yeah. her. And it was just like pure magic. And I want them to have that joy and that excitement about being able to earn money and buy the things that, that they want. Uh, I think that's really cool. Man, she must have felt like she was balling out of her mind with a hundred dollars, but um yeah. Yeah, my dad, I remember he paid us 25 cents per chore. And I remember yeah. being so pissed off about it. And <laughs> I still don't know if that was the right number. I still feel like he was a little on the low end, you know, because it like it was yeah. so little that it was like demoralizing because you're like 13. Mm -hmm. You're like, I could go find a quarter. <laughs> like if I, yeah. if I went and like searched around, like I could find some change. But I do think that's that's a cool concept, though, of like making your kids like buy their own stuff. Do you do that with pretty much everything? Like mm -hmm. not food and stuff like that, I'm sure, but like just anything that they want to go do, like go to anything the movies or anything like that. Yep. They want to go anything that we're not like initiating. If they want to go get a soda or go out for ice cream, they buy all of that stuff. Um, and we make them invest half. Like we're in a we're kind of a safe half. So they each have their own little investment accounts. We set them up through Fidelity because Fidelity has a great little app. And so I can just pull it up real quick and we can invest $9 or $7. Like there's not a huge minimum. So they can see kind of that small incremental process because I have five of them. They're super competitive. They all want to beat, beat each other with their investment accounts. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, cool. They all pull up on the same screen. Um, but yeah, having that like budgeting and priorities and um, when they want to buy a thing, we have a big whiteboard in our hallway. They have to write the name of it on it and then they have to wait a month. Um, wow. And if they change their mind, it resets the clock. So they have to wait another month from Whoa. whenever they change their mind uh, to get in that habit of like something I appreciated growing up was being thoughtful about money. like caring about the money I received, making smart purchases, like prioritizing things. Because one of the, I would say, I hate to say mistakes, I don't want to be judgy, but <laughs> one of the ways things kind of go awry with kids that I see kind of going into adulthood is this idea of like, money's unlimited. Whatever you want, whatever's good for you, whatever would enrich you, there is no budget because parents don't want to deprive their kids, but the kids grow up in like this delusional space where like there is no budget. If they want it, if it's good for them, if they can rationalize why this would enrich their life, therefore they should have it. And yeah. you know, you don't want to deprive your kids, but at the same time, like I tell them all the time, like, no, we're not doing that. Like that's expensive. Um, you know, having, Having them feel those financial boundaries, I think is super important to their financial success as an adult. What would you say, I'm not, as I'm listening to you, I'm not actually sure how I feel about this or not, but what would you say if somebody was like, that sounds, everything you said sounds like a scarcity mindset. 
like that, you know, like scarcity versus abundance and all of that. Like, what are your thoughts on just that whole debate? Cause I've been through both parts of it in my life and mm. I'm kind of, I think somewhere in the middle on it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think there is like hope shouldn't feel dangerous. Like, I don't think that's, that's helpful. It's a helpful place yeah. to be in, but there are limits. There are boundaries to our time. There are boundaries to our energy. There are boundaries in our finances. And sometimes I see people be delusional in all of those. Yeah. Um, and it rarely works out well. Um, I was talking to an entrepreneur who is working like 60, 70 hours a week. And I'm like, there are limits. <laughs> You've been playing this delusional game where you think there's no limits to how much I can do. There are limits. And like, we need to start acknowledging that, that like, this isn't the path forward forever because I'm sorry, you're not a robot. Like you're a human who has yeah. like human body needs and human, <laughs> like human relational needs. And, and so kind of working inside those limits. And I think it helps you be smarter, like, cause you have to make choices yeah. and you can't buy all the things and you can't do all the things and you can't be all the things like pick your lane, you know, pick the one thing you want to buy and commit to that and then change your mind. Um, I think that little bit of self-control and that little bit of discipline, um, when I look at like successful business people, there's some self-control and there's some discipline. Um, it's not sure. like a million different directions in everything with like no concept of any sort of boundary. Yeah. Do you think any of your kids are going to be entrepreneurs? Um, one of them is a little bit interested, uh, but I don't know. I mean, I'm... I'm really open-minded to whatever they want to do. Um, and you know, that's kind of, kind of the privilege of being middle-class is I don't have to shoot down all of their dreams because they're not the most pragmatic. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I can say, yeah, if that doesn't work, you can come and move back in with us. Like we have a place for you. Um, and so That's it cool. does give them more leeway to take risks and to do things that might not work. Um, and because we homeschool for a lot of the year, they do, we do kind of half and half um, with public school and homeschool. Like it does help give them the, like, what am I interested in? And like the space to chase down things that they're passionate about. And they do look at things differently and think about things differently. Um, when they have more of that autonomy. Um, so we'll see, I don't know, but, uh, one of them right now really wants to be an archeologist. Oh, that's like, cool. Super gung ho on this. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. one of them, because she's convinced she wants a mansion on the beach and she wants to be rich. She's decided she wants to be a neurosurgeon. So she's just Dang. going all in on this. And she's so funny. Like, Kids are so unique. She, okay, so nine, 10 years old, if you can picture like a fourth grader has mapped this all out. 
She has researched highest earning professions in California, <laughs> what specialty of those professions each one makes. She figured out what classes she would have to take at our community college, where she could finish her undergraduate, where she would go to medical school, the exact cost of this degree program, which she calculated is $188,000, um, what her starting salary would be, how long it would take for her to like repay her student <laughs> loans. Awesome. And I'm like, child, you're nine. Like right. most 19 year olds have not calculated this entire thing out. Um, but yeah, having that, that time and space to be like, let me sort this out in my head. Yeah. That's so cool. Um, wow. Neurosurgeon. That, yeah, we actually have a, my, my wife's cousin is going down that route. Like she wants to be mm -hmm. a doctor and all that. I'm just like, God, that's such a, I work a lot, but like, that seems like a grind, like just to try to just go down that path. Well, she's but decided she doesn't want to have kids. Uh, they take too much time Already? and money. <laughs> she's not going <laughs> to well, get married. Hey, I mean, they do take, um, and she's going to bake as her hobby and bring baked goods in to her coworkers. Because uh, I warned her that sometimes surgeons are jerks. And so you need to like be extra wow. nice. Like you got to compensate for that. So she's decided she's going to bake everyone uh, a birthday cake for their birthday. Wow. Uh, that's wild. Yeah. That's like, that's like very far out planning. That's cool though. Um, so I have a question about something that you asked earlier. Uh, because my wife and I have been talking about this too. You, you homeschool half the time and you mm -hmm. do public school the other half. Like how, mm -hmm. how do you do that? <laughs> um, I don't know if the school entirely appreciates this, uh -oh. but <laughs> there's nothing they can do. So here's what we do. Uh, in the fall, we enroll them in public school. Um, they will do six weeks. We will unenroll them and sign them up to homeschool. We will homeschool them for the six months we travel. When we come back, we will re-enroll them in public school. They will finish the school year and then we will homeschool them throughout the summer. And so it's just, sometimes we ask for a small leave, but mostly we enroll and unenroll our kids a lot. Um, and the weird thing, with homeschooling is that like oftentimes kids can get way ahead of their grade level. So them jumping back that. into their grade, um, is it's not disruptive in the sense of they're way behind and they don't know any of this. Um, it is a little disruptive in the sense of like, they can be super bored. Um, I have one child who's like, unfortunately maybe borderline genius and uh it's nothing but a pain in the ass um <laughs> i was gonna say why'd you say unfortunately that sounds awesome so difficult no no yeah. and i i try to hold this child back as much as i can <laughs> because it's just it's weird and it's becoming problematic so like i never was like i want to yeah. have like a 10 year old who's graduated high school like i don't i'm I have no interest in that. So, but he's way too smart. And I warned, we warned his teacher when he started this year and we apologized when he started and two weeks in, <laughs> sure enough, we get an email. We need to set up an appointment because he's having some trouble oh, no. in school. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, he's in fourth grade math and 
you're starting second grade math. You're learning like place values and he's doing long division in his head. Um, yeah, it's going to be problematic. So. Yeah. So like the school is just, they're just, they just kind of accept it that you're just going to pull your kids out every six months and like, well, and, and so they, some of them that know us and know our kids like are amazed and our kids do so well homeschooling and they make so much progress that they're supportive in theory. Other people who don't know are kind of like, this isn't going to go well, um, until they become believers. But at least in our state, I think in most states, like you can't deny a child from enrolling in public school. And you can't prevent them yeah, from unenrolling to homeschool. Like it's illegal to say, no, we don't want to educate your child anymore. Like you're annoying, go away. Um, they have to, <laughs> you can enroll your kids in public school and you're legally allowed to unenroll them. So, um, Man, you like found a loophole. It's not, I guess it's not really a loophole. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty, pretty obvious thing, I guess. I've just, my wife and I were talking about that. Cause like, we'd love to have, like, we want to travel we like where we live. We live in, well, okay. Let me back up even further. We kind of like where we live. We live in Houston. Um, we like living in Texas. However, the summers here are so mm. God awful. It's like the worst. It's just like the older I get, the more I'm like, I can't do another summer where it's 107 degrees outside, like hundred percent humidity. And so yeah. we'd love to have like a, a situation where we traveled to like the West coast for the summer. And then like maybe in the winter we travel to like Florida or something like that. But we've always been talking about like, how do you do that? Like, what do you do with your kids? Like you either homeschool them and we don't really, my wife doesn't want to do that. I don't know if I would actually have like realistic time to do that. Maybe mm -hmm. I would. And, but then it's like, you hear about people hiring like a teacher and it's like, well, how much does that cost? That mm -hmm. sounds like really crazy. Um, so yeah, I've just always wondered how that goes. How does the homeschooling thing work for you? Like, do you put together the lesson? Like, is it, is it a pain or is it fun? Um, I mean, it is whatever you make it. Um, you're so positive. <laughs> <laughs> well, like we've definitely set it up to where it was an enormous pain in the ass. And then we were like, oh, this doesn't work. We need to try something else. And through trial and error, you kind of land on like what works for your kids and what works for you and what works for your family. Um, so we have kind of a like, so for example, on our last trip, I bought all of the books, like as we traveled. Um, yeah. and we, after eight months, we came home with 250 books. Um, what? That's, yeah, they that's... just, you know, it's weird when you give kids like the autonomy to be like, here's a whole bunch of books, read what you want. And so my, my philosophy was they have to do some math. They have to read something educational like history or science, and they have to write a little report. So we're going to get math, history or science or writing. And so they would just read a book and write a book report and read a book and write a book report and read a book and write a book report. And they worked through 50 history books while we were gone wow. and just yeah. like way more information than I ever remember learning as a kid, but you know, yeah, it's just how it worked out. Um, yeah. and whenever they're interested in something like my little neurosurgeon, she was in fourth grade at the time. So she started, she was like, well, I need to learn biology. I need to learn anatomy. Like I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. I was like, okay. So she picked out a junior high, like biology book, plowed through the whole thing in like 
two and a half weeks. And I was like, oh, dear God, okay. She was like, now I want a high school biology. And I'm like, sweetie, you're like nine. Like, it's too, no. She was like, I can do it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then she wanted a CLEP test book so that she could take a CLEP test and test out of biology. And I was like, oh, Jeez. okay, I guess. Like, wow. Buying stuff and letting them run amok, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's cool though. I'm glad you've been able to figure that out. Um, one, one thing I've, mm -hmm. I mean, we're 55 minutes into the episode and I figured you probably talked about this sooner, but like many retirements, that's kind of your thing. And that's probably mm -hmm. what has allowed you to do this with your kids, right? <laughs> okay. Can yeah. you tell the people what a mini retirement is? Um, I define it as any time you step away from your primary career for a month or longer to do something that matters to you. And so it can be, it can be small, it can be simple, it can be big and complex. One of the reasons I use the phrase retire often is that I don't think it should be a one and done because it's so scary and hard and stressful. And like, there's so much of a learning curve for the first one that like, you need to roll that experience into a few more cause they get better and better and easier and easier as you go. But like the first one's always the hardest. So yeah, I'm a big fan of like retiring often. And for us, our motivation was, like I said, I didn't have a ton of hope. I didn't, I wasn't like, we'll totally be fine at 32 and be able to retire <laughs> early. Like that was never on my bingo card. So I thought, well, this is what we can do. Like we can take many retirements and we can make sure that we're not missing out on like the best parts of life just because we're not able to retire early. So, okay. Yeah. Was this, was this, because I'm sure people that are listening to this, I remember when I heard about this concept, because this is mm -hmm. something you've been talking about for a while. And I was like, what is that? Like, I don't even know what that is. Cause like, there's like the fire community and that's just like retire as soon as possible and just yeah. do whatever. Um, yeah. this is kind of like a, like a, it's almost, it almost feels like a more realistic spin on it. If I'm being yeah. honest, you know what I mean? Like Way more accessible. I, yeah. More accessible. And like, I don't know how you feel specifically about, I know that you're like into the financial independence movement and like fire mm -hmm. is a big part of that fire the way that I see a lot of people do it seems like it kind of sucks. Like it just seems like you just, just count every single last penny. And then like, mm -hmm. I've seen people quit too early mm -hmm. and they really struggle and it's like not what they thought. So like this idea of like dipping your toes into sort of like, sort of, I don't know. Yeah. You're dipping your toes into retirement and like coming back mm -hmm. out whenever you want. Mm -hmm. Like, was that something that happened after you reach financial independence and you're like, let's just try this. Or was that something like a little bit further along where you were like, let's just do this for like a month or two. Yeah, no, I think we did six or eight or so before we became financially independent. Like it was just kind of the plan all along to take small career Whoa. breaks. Um, and there's no matter what your situation, there are challenges to taking career breaks. And it's one of the reasons like, on my podcast, I just share stories of people who've taken mini retirements because like everyone has challenges. <laughs> um, if, you know, I recently interviewed a CEO who'd like became massively successful by 40 and someone online was like, well, that's not hard to take a mini retirement. Like he probably had enough money. <laughs> and I'm like, you've clearly never been a CEO. <laughs> like 
it's super right. hard to step down from that career trajectory for yeah. a year or 18 months. Uh, same with entrepreneurs. Like, I, you won't believe how many people tell me, oh, you own your own business? Well, then that must be so easy. And I'm like, oh clearly God. you've yeah. never met an entrepreneur. <laughs> like, yeah. Everyone has their own challenges. So for us, you know, stepping away from work wasn't the challenge. Like I worked a lot of hourly jobs. I obviously did a ton of different jobs. I had all these natural break points that I could step away for a month or two months or a couple of years. Um, the finances were the challenging perks and we were making a ton of money. Um, right. But it was always kind of, it was, it was the plan because I didn't think, I don't, I don't, not only did I not think I would be able to retire early, I don't think I would have been interested in the concept. Um, like my, my kind of, I don't know, professional icon is Betty White. Like the really? idea of just being able to do work that you love with other creative professionals that you're excited to hang out with, like in, for someone in that field to be able to host SNL like three times, like post 70 yeah. and like that to be able to work at like that peak capacity, but she's not working 60 hours a week. She's doing a couple projects here and there as it fits her life, as it fits her schedule, but gets to be part of this really exciting creative community. I'm like a hundred percent. That's what I want to be. So you did this several times and then you eventually reached financial independence and then you kept mm -hmm. doing this. Like, I think the biggest thing that pops into my mind, just as somebody that, that hires people, like mm -hmm. if somebody, let's say somebody's like a salary, I'm sure you, plenty of people have done this that you've talked to that mm -hmm. are kind of like in your community, like they're salaried people and mm -hmm. they're leaving these jobs for six to 18 months. It sounds like mm -hmm. is about right. How do they go back and get another, like, is it hard for them to get another job? Because like, I can sit there and see myself interviewing someone. And it's like, if I saw that they had like skipped around a lot and then like, I'm sure that they'd probably be pretty open about like, I, I want to take many retirements, which like, how, how does that work? Like, how do people just like re-enter the workforce? Yeah. Um, so it's typically not a challenge, but there is a little bit of a sorting, uh, like it, how you tell the story matters a lot. Um, okay. So if you go to an employer that does care about like people being at their best, that cares about people being creative and innovative and like fully functioning as a human being and like understands that they have like interests and hobbies to say, here's what I did. I did all of these amazing wow. things. I took this time away. Um, Here's maybe what I learned professionally. Here's the kind of growth I experienced. Now I'm back and I'm excited to do this next leg. Either an employer is also like a human that's like human to human. You did some really cool stuff, stuff that I'm interested in doing. And it looks like it was massively productive. And I'm excited to have someone like that on my team. And it's not an issue at all. Or they say, we only hire robots and drones. And the fact that you even have a life um, is super off-putting. And then right. that gives you the, oh, I might not love it here. Like this might not be the best employer for me as a person who has interests and passions and like 
cares about my health and cares about bringing my best to an organization, like instead of viewing many retirements as an escape, like I kind of view it sometimes as just like a halftime, <laughs> like the best athletes in the world take a halftime because that's where we recharge, we refresh, we regroup, like we reimagine. If you've been kind of in a rut, you reimagine how this next phase can go, how you can kind of right the ship. And, and that doesn't make you lazy. Like we would never look at like, oh, if you take a halftime as a basketball player, like you're a lazy basketball player who doesn't care about the game. Like, <sighs> no, they take that break because they care a whole lot about the game. Yeah, that makes sense. It would still scare me. I'll be honest with you. I mean, maybe it's a, a company scale, like size thing, because like, mm. I feel like in a larger company, it would be easier to absorb something like that. Like if somebody, you know, six months, is that what we're talking about? Or is it shorter than that sometimes? You know, like it depends. Like if it's between jobs, people will usually go with something larger. Okay. But if you're negotiating with your employer, a lot of people just want a month off or six weeks, okay. you know, they don't yeah, need do a massive amount of time. And I always tell people like, as an employee, your job is to make your job is to do all of this mental work It's to do all of the emotional labor. Like you don't go to your boss and drop this in their lap and say, this is your new problem to fix today. Like you need to have brought what are their challenges going to be? What is the way this is going to affect the team? Who's going to cover what? How does this work? And what concessions am I willing to make? Because it doesn't have to be a hundred percent. You know, I've had a lot of clients that like, I had an accountant once and she said, yeah, they can bring in a temp. They can cover me. I know they're not going to trust the temp to do the end of month books. And that sure. takes about yeah. six hours. And I was like, well, could you go in one day for six hours a month? And she was like, yeah, yeah no, that wouldn't be any problem. Um, I had another client that, you know, managed multiple like client accounts and there was one that was really important and she was the contact person for that. And it's like, well, can you go do this thing and still take care of that one client? Maybe that means 15 minutes a day responding to their emails. Maybe that means a two hour meeting on Friday, but like, could you travel through Europe and still look after this one really important client? And so sometimes you have to know, like, what are the concessions that if there's a sticking point that like nobody can figure out, like you make a small concession. Okay. That makes more sense. <laughs> like I was, yeah, before this interview, I was just thinking like, man, how would I feel if somebody did that? Mm -hmm. But it, I will say one of the things that we're doing, we're trying it anyway, we're, we're doing mm -hmm. unlimited time off and we're doing, um, we shut down the company for two weeks. A di like a different parts of the year, like the entire mm -hmm. company shuts down. Um, so we're trying to do a little bit more of that. Cause I do agree. Like you can't have burnout people working mm -hmm. in your company. Cause then they do really bad work. <laughs> like it's not even their fault. Yeah. They're just burnt, you know, like yeah. and, and I get burnt out too. Everybody does. Um, but it's a, yeah, one month I could, I could do that. If somebody said that to me, I'd be, I could, I could do it. I wouldn't tell them that they have to be a robot. Um, <laughs> do you, so do you coach people through this process? It sounds like you, might yeah. be taking clients on for that. Yeah. What, what do you notice after they, after they do it? Like, how do they change? Mm -hmm. You know, it's so tough on the front end because I'll tell people this can be life changing, but you don't know how, 
Like you don't know what that's going to look like. So it's a little bit of an act of faith. But the reality is you create the space and new things. It's like clearing out a garden space. Like it gives you a chance for new things to grow and you come back changed. So like life can't be the same because you're not the same. Um, And for different people, depending on kind of what's urgent, what's important, it looks different ways. Uh, I just interviewed someone and this was so, I don't know, I thought it was so cool. She, you know, went through, was really burned out professionally and went through a really hard divorce and then was like in her thirties and it's like, okay, now I have to like reimagine life. And she solo traveled and there's something about solo traveling if you've been in that spot where like you're kind of a people pleaser and you're not great at setting boundaries and like you get stuck and here's what I need to do and here's what I should do and here's what I have to do and here's what I need to do and here's what I should do. When you're solo traveling, you have to figure out what do you want to do? Because every day you wake up and there's nothing you need to do. There's nothing you should do. There's nothing you have to do. And you have to tap into what do I want to do? What What do I desire to do? And you have to ask yourself that question a thousand times over. And she came back like herself. She came back fully alive with like a clear vision of what she wanted out of her profession. And she ended up kind of pivoting a little bit professionally, found her new dream job. But she's like, but now I'm, I can like, contribute meaningfully in like meetings and I can say like I can set some boundaries and I can put out ideas and I can be more intuitive because I learn to like listen and trust myself and that's where creativity that's where innovation comes from it's not from just like what do I have to do what do I should do like what do I need to do and just (laughs) kind of managing you know especially in entrepreneurship it's not just about meeting expectations. Like you have to be creative and you have to be innovative and you have to see connections and ways to improve things outside of people just telling you what to do all day long. Right. Yeah. Is there ever, do people have like this, I would imagine at least that people go through a period of time when they first step away where they like maybe lose a sense of purpose Mm. or maybe go through like a, like a mini bout of depression almost or something like that. Like, is that something you see often? Yeah. So especially going through public school, public college, a career, most people for their entire lives have set, have, have had someone organize their time for them, have had someone say, here's what you need to focus on. Here's what you need to show up. Here's what you need to do. And here's what success looks like. Here's when you should feel good about yourself. And here's when you should feel bad about yourself. Um, most adults have no experience organizing their own time in a way that's meaningful or enjoyable. Um, (laughs) we just haven't had any practice at it. And honestly, like nights and weekends, there's so many things that we need to do and we should do. And we have to do that. Like that kind of overrides, how do I want to spend the day? Um, all of that is kind of already mapped out, planned out for you by just demands of life. And so it can be very, especially if you're also burned out and your body's like trying to recover and rest, 
it can be a little bit untethering for people. It can feel very uncomfortable. And so there's a couple tactics I have people do to like how to transition from this structured demanding environment to like this open-ended um, kind of loose. It's, it's almost like homeschooling. When, when I take my kids from like public school <laughs> where everything's been massively scheduled out for them and I say, now we're going to learn, we're going to find things that we're interested in and things that you're curious about. And you're going to run down that path. Like they're kind of like, wait, now what am I supposed to be doing? What, no, what should I, what, what is, what do you, what are you requiring of me? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a whole different thing to figure out. Yeah. I, it's, I remember even when I quit my teaching job and I was like, I was going to run the blog like just that was all I was going to do. I didn't have anything else to do. And I remember just like being a, like alone a lot for the first time mm -hmm. in my life. And I was like alone mm -hmm. a lot. And I was like in coffee shops, just, I was writing a lot, but back then I wasn't making any money and I didn't have like a lot of stuff to do. And I was just kind of writing every day and just kind of making it. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting depressed. I didn't know it was, like, I didn't know it was depression, I think at the time. And I'm still not even like, mm -hmm. I never got like clinically diagnosed, so I'm not a hundred percent sure. But I remember just like a real sense of like loneliness and a real mm -hmm. sense of like, um, I don't know, like maybe numbness or something like that. It was just a really weird thing. It was like, I finally achieved this thing that I thought would be like so amazing where it's like, I'm going to quit the job. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do whatever I want every single day. And then you're just like, Oh man, it's kind of lonely. Like you go to the grocery store, nobody's there. Like you go to play, <laughs> like you go to all these different places and there's like, people aren't on the same time. And eventually I got through it. Cause I realized like, Oh, I need to work with people. <laughs> like I need to actually like yeah. either hire people or be in communities and things like that. So like, do you, is there something like that for people that do like, do you provide community for these people or like, are there places where they kind of can, I don't know, be like, go through this with somebody else? I haven't yet, but it's, it's one of those things that's on the forefront of my mind because it's such a unique experience mm -hmm. and you need other people who yeah. are going through it because like when I work with a client, they have me, but like we need more people right. uh, to normalize, <laughs> yeah. to normalize the experience because you can't, it's not like when you hit normal retirement age at 65, that transition, the thing is it's hard for everyone it's hard for anyone. It doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, you have to figure it out eventually, but at least when you retire at 65, all of your peers are also trying to figure it out. Like you're all in the same boat. And so you have this yeah. camaraderie of like, you go out to coffee in the morning at the coffee shop and you all chat about like, what's going well, what's not going well, you can brainstorm it. But when you're in like 34 or 47, you can't go to your friend who's like super maxed out in their work and say, man, now I'm like home all the time with my spouse. And like, we're starting to get on each other's nerves because we're spending all this time yeah. together. And I that. feel like I have all of this time, <laughs> but like, I'm not actually producing anything. And so I actually feel like more tired at the end of the day. Like nobody wants to hear that. Oh, you have too much time no. with the people you love. <laughs> oh, you have too much free time. Like yeah. it's hard to figure it out. Like nobody, nobody wants to hear it. So like it is, <laughs> It is helpful to have people who understand the experience because it is so unique. Yeah. What was cool about it though, just like you said, eventually I found, I like found what I, who I really was. 
you know, mm -hmm. like, even though I wasn't doing like a mini retirement necessarily, like it was very similar mm -hmm. and it was just, yeah. I went through a period of time where I was felt kind of lost. And then once I realized like, oh, I think I should be like building a team or something. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I'm actually somebody that should be like trying to lead an organization. Now I'm like yeah. so much happier because yeah. I've, I've realized, like I found who I was and I was like, oh, I'm going to do that now. And then now yeah. I'm doing that. And it was like, it's awesome. And it, I, I don't think I could have figured that out had I not gone through kind of a, I guess a dark period, you yeah. know, something like, I don't think I would have figured it out if I hadn't done that. It's that process of tapping into what do you want and then creating it. Yeah. Like it's, you can't like until you have the space to really ask yourself those questions, um, until you have the, the openness to like figure out what's missing it takes time and then it takes time to create it. And it's the same, no matter whether those are hobbies or interests or volunteering or, you know, even how do you, how do you hang out with your kids in a way that's enjoyable and meaningful for a lot of people who've been maxed out in their careers? Like they don't really know how to hang out with their kids and have fun because yeah. they haven't done it. And you know, that's why a lot of middle-aged parents talk about how awful vacation is because now you're stuck with this family <laughs> that like you don't actually spend a whole bunch of time with and you realize, oh, you kind of drive each other crazy. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a good point. It, it is weird. Like you, you, it's weird how we go through life like that, right? Like we go through life mm -hmm. in this like way that we probably were never really meant to go through it. It's a very strange thing when you really start to think about it. Um, what's the what's the best success story you've seen from it? Like what's the coolest client story you've had? You know, it's always whatever's meaningful to them. And it's tough because sometimes those things on the outside look massively impressive. Like some people have done really cool things, whether, you know, they moved to France for two years or they traveled through Southeast Asia for 18 months, or they, pivoted in their profession and started a whole new career. Um, but to me, the thing is like when it meets that need, when it like gives you the opportunity to become more fully yourself or to heal or to recover or to grow, like sometimes it's not a big flashy thing. Sometimes it's, I interviewed someone last week who had a really stressful job as like a nuclear engineer and quit and became a farmer and like <laughs> was just home with her kids and she was in community and for like the first time in her life she's like i have friends i have people that i like go out to yoga with and run half marathons with and we hang out in the mornings and like i'm middle-aged and i have like this whole group of people that i know and i like and i, I see every day and and as like and also middle-aged woman with like a lot of kids and a lot going on. That is a tough thing to find. Um, yeah. Because we're in that season of our lives where we have like kids and we're in our middle of our careers and we have parents that maybe need our help. Like most people I know my age don't have like a ton of free time and a lot of mental and emotional bandwidth to like hang out with friends. <laughs> and I was just like, right. that's amazing. Like that. That is impossibly amazing. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's, it's cool. I'm, I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad you're taking like a unique angle at this. Cause I don't think any, anybody else is 
really talking about many retirements, at least the way that, that you do. Uh, you probably had some people copy you at this point, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm so kind of switching gears. But the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, I have this book right here and I want to talk to you about this book, fire Yay! the haters. Um, and I was just, I was curious about it because one, I've wanted to write a book for a while. I don't know on what, mm. um, and I was just curious, like, did you like doing this? Like, was this something that you did on one of your breaks or like, what, what kind of came to you to say that I need to write this book? You know, <laughs> so the first book I wrote the book, I really needed to read. I wrote the book for me. First off, like, how do I survive online <laughs> and not like go insane? How do I, how do I stay yeah. in the game? Um, because yeah, it, it requires some hope and it requires all these things that my upbringing did not provide me. Um, but I think for, for you, for me in writing my next book, there's things that you've said so many times. There's concepts you've explained so many times. And so the writing is more of a, how do I organize all of these ideas in a cohesive, like linear way that can just give people the whole, the whole blueprint, all of the questions, all of the concerns. And, you know, I'm writing the book retire often now, and I'm not, I'm not trying to like come up with ideas or con content. I'm just trying to document all of the conversations I've had, all of the things I've talked about, all of the things I've written about, all the questions that I've gotten over the years in something that's cohesive. Um, you know, and, and you're a good writer, but even if you don't love writing, like there's a lot of ways to get help with that process. It doesn't have to be a solo activity. And so finding right. editors to help you organize the outline or to help you shape what a chapter should look like. You know, it is, it's different than writing a blog post and that like it all has to tie together <laughs> front to back. <laughs> and so it's like yeah. a lot more to hold in your head. Um, cause you're trying to essentially put together like 15, 18 long blog posts into one cohesive okay. thing. That makes sense. Um, do you know how long it took you? Um, so I write about a thousand, fifteen hundred words an hour. Um, so if you write, is that good? I don't know if that's good. It's just what I do. That's what I do. I mean, you know, how long does it take you to write okay. a blog post? Um, and you can kind know. of guesstimate, like you can kind of sample it out, but let's yeah. say, I would say a thousand words an hour, if it's a subject you're familiar with is pretty common. Yeah. So 60,000 words, you got about 60 hours and then comes the, the editing part, yeah. um, which takes just as long for sure, at least another okay. 60 hours. So if you're doing an hour a day, now we're at, you know, four or five months um, of an hour a day. And honestly, the, the hardest, probably most time consuming aspect of it is marketing the book. Um, yeah. like that's going to take the biggest chunk of time. Um, but it's also, some people hate it. 
for me, I really enjoy it because I've been living with these ideas in my head for now <laughs> a year, 18 months, yeah. and I'm so ready just to like talk to people about it. Like, can we just, can other people read it and can we talk about it now? Because like, it's just like lived in my head for too long in isolation. Yeah. What, so can you just, I kind of skipped the part where I said, I wanted to say like, what is the book about? Can you tell people mm. what, just a brief synopsis, of, like, what is the book? Why did you write it? Yeah, I wrote it to survive, um, <laughs> personally, Yeah, uh, but yeah. I, I knew a lot of, you know, I worked with clients who were entrepreneurs and creatives. I have a lot of friends that are creatives and like, these were the conversations we were having. Like, how do we navigate this? How do we survive this? How do we, dare we say, thrive in this environment? And so yeah. I kind of broke it into three parts, like one, how to navigate this online world. And some of that's like emotional boundaries and how to think about your work. You know, it can't be your child. It can't be an extension of you. Like it has to be grown. And when you ship it out there, you just have to let it live its life independently <laughs> from you. You can't like helicopter parent it. Um, and then the middle section was more in being a creative, like, how do you stay in the game? How do you not get discouraged or overwhelmed? Like, how do you keep putting in the reps when your work is mediocre and like push through kind of that season of life? Um, and the last part was in winning and losing. How do we not let this make us weird? Like narcissist or destroyed, like either way is not helpful. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting concept. I think, I mean, I remember when I first saw the book, when, when did this come out? This was, I'm like, my concept of time is like so jacked up now. 2021. Uh, yep. Fall twenty. So this is like right in the middle of the pandemic pretty yep. much. Yeah. I wrote it 2020. That was, a, that was a wild time to be online too. Like that was a oh, crazy was time hot. for, uh, yeah, hot. it was, oh my God, it was. Tension was high. Man. And that's actually, I like, I kind of like. I didn't take like a sabbatical at all. I've been working this entire time, but like I definitely just was like, yeah, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. I'm just going to mm -hmm. work on like the business, you know? So I, I went yeah. more into like the Google side of things and, and just mm -hmm. growing the infrastructure of the company. And now I'm kind of like, you know, even with this podcast, like I'm just trying to just, I don't know, put myself out there again. Cause it's been so long since I did it. And I remember seeing this book and I was just like, man, that's such a perfect book for this time because back in, back in the middle of the pandemic, it was like, it was tough to be an online creator. Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't sit, like you had to be really careful. Maybe, I don't know if you had to be really careful about what you said, but it was like, yeah, people were getting, people were getting whacked left and right just for mm -hmm. a lot of different things. You know, did you feel any of that? Like your, would you, was it kind of a scary time for you or were you kind of just, um, yeah, I mean, it's always been hard for me to show up on social media, like fully as myself. Yeah. Because I feel, sure. I don't feel like I do well, really black and white. Like, I feel like I'm a naturally nuanced person <laughs> um, who likes to have mm. nuanced conversation. And so social media isn't usually my favorite format. Like, I think they're in the content creator community. There's people who love to think in short content form and they do amazing in short content form. And then right. there's people who think in long content form. Most of the times these are not the same people. <laughs> like these are two different groups of people. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it's not, 
it's not necessarily my my easiest medium. I'm definitely like a long content thinker. Like I like books. I like I like to string a whole bunch of ideas together and see how they work together because the the sum of them is much greater than the parts in my head. Yeah. So you didn't do any like TikTok dancing or anything? No. No. <laughs> that was when that's when I was like, okay, I might be out on social media. I remember when I saw that stuff blowing up, I was like, oh my God, I can't do this. Like this is, this is where it's going. And it's, it's gotten so much better mm-hmm. since then. I feel like now everything's come back down to like a, I don't know, a relatively stable environment, but, um, yeah, yeah it just got so weird there. So I thought it was a very well-timed book. Um, <laughs> so what's the next one about? Uh, it's called retire often. So it's all about many retirements. Just retiring often. <laughs> yeah. It's the, we kind of go through like how to figure out what it should be through negotiation with your job, through the financial aspect, and then some kind of tips and tricks of like, how do you navigate this time off? Like, how do you deal with maybe that initial slump or that depression? Or how do you organize your time? How do you kind of test and scale things and make sure that it goes really well. Um, yeah. When do you think that one's coming out? Is it done yet? Mm, I have the first draft done. So probably 2025, I figure six months to edit. And then if I go with a traditional publisher, um, if you want to write a book, I have one that I'm kind of have my, my eyes on that I'm kind of impressed with so far. Um, if you're interested, um, then for them and for most traditional publishers, after you have the whole manuscript finished, uh, it's 12 months from that date. Wow. Um, it's a long time. Maybe it didn't, maybe it didn't feel like a long time as you're doing it, but that sounds like a long time. It is, but there's also like, you really have to shift into kind of the marketing mode. Um, so it gives you, you know, the three months before are just insanity. So it gives you nine months to kind of do the marketing on like your side of, of the deal. So it goes by fast. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I hope you send me a copy again, because I I very much enjoyed that. I still have my stickers that you sent with it as well. So I appreciate that. And the handwritten <laughs> note, that was all cool. So, um, well, I, I loved talking to you today. It was great catching up and, uh, I hope to have you back on again. Like my goal with this podcast is just to have people on every few months and just kind of nice. talk. Um, but can you, can you tell people where, where to find you? And I don't know, you've got a bunch of stuff going on. So just use this time <laughs> to tell them where, where to find you. Yeah. Retire often is the podcast and the website. Um, And I do have like a little mini retirement quiz, like kind of a, what do you need right now in this season of your life? Uh, what should the next one evolve? Uh, or on social media, I'm Jillian Johnsrud. Um, but if you can't pronounce or can't spell that, uh, retire often is the (laughs) website. Um, but yeah, on all social media, I'm Jillian Johnsrud and I'm trying and tell you what, (laughs) I have been so bad on social media that there's like three people I chat with every day on social media because they show up. So if you're like, I want to be friends with Jillian and talk to her every single day, just show up (laughs) on social media and you'll get me. You have my undivided attention. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, again, I appreciate you coming on. It was, it's been great catching up. I can't believe it's been so long since we've, we've talked, but we should do it again soon. Yeah. Pandemic time warp. Absolutely. Yeah. 